Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? You guys seem kind of like tired this morning. Yes, tired this morning? Why would you be tired this weekend? I don't understand. Is it still because of the game on Friday? You don't even know. You're just tired. You don't know. All right, so we've been in the series called Hosea, and we've subtitled it A Love Story, and uh, because Hosea is a love story, and um, the the prophet Hosea was his call was to point out the idolatry of Israel. That was his main call, and so we've taken a little bit of a veering off from the story of Hosea to focus on idolatry in our culture the last few weeks. And so today is a continuation of that. And so we'll get back to the actual book of Hosea in the coming weeks. But for now, we've discussed. Uh, do you guys recall the first idol we discussed? It was the idol of. Love, yes. I'm glad it had, to, it had such a huge impression on you. Uh, and the second one was, last week, was money. And then this week we're talking about the idol of success, which might be surprising to some of you. Now, I want to start by reading a quote from um, an artist that you may not even know who she is, but her name is Madonna. And I know she's not cool anymore, and you might think she never was. That's what I personally think, but... I didn't have a Justin Bieber quote, so I had to go with Madonna. Um, besides, Justin Bieber's still 13, not saying very many wise things yet. So, All right, so here's the, uh, this quote from Madonna. She says, she says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover my, myself as a special human being, and then I get another, to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Raise your hand if you have felt this way before with things you're involved in. Just be honest. I know this is church, not the place for that, but let's be honest. Um, so we've all felt this, this, this tension. We can relate to this. We feel like we have to prove something. And much of what we're involved in, we see as the way for us to prove that we are someone, someone special. And you can, you can achieve something even in high school and feel like I've arrived. And yet in a week or two, that feeling's gone, right? And you have that feeling all over again. Like I've, I've got to prove the next thing. I've got to do the same thing in the next theater production I've got to do the same thing in the next sporting event, right? And this is a cycle that many of us are on. So success can be kind of like a drug, an addiction of sorts. I know on the one hand, you're thinking to yourself, so what are you trying to say, Dave? Are you trying to say that success is bad? Are you trying to say that we should just be failures? We should play more video games? We should sleep in more and eat more Twinkies? Like, what are you, what are you trying to say if success is bad, then... What's the alternative? Where, where, where else do we land? Should we just be more lazy? Is that the right solution? I know after today you're probably going to go home and you're going to say, and your parents are like, are you going to study for your test? You're like, no, because I don't want success to be an idol for me. I'm going to fail on purpose. Right? So I'm not saying that that's the alternative. But I am saying that success can very easily become our identity. It can become an idol to us. 
In fact, I think in our world, people let success or failure define them. And it starts at a very early age. In fact, my son, Landon, he was on a, his first soccer team this past springtime. They had like eight games on Saturdays. And um, it was fun to watch him play and stuff like that. But it was interesting because we're leaving the field one day, and this other little four-year-old kid, I forget his name, we're walking on the field, and the, and the kid says to my son, he says, he says, I had three goals today. You didn't have any goals, Landon. And my son, he's, he's not even aware of this kind of stuff. He's just like, yeah, whatever. You know, he's like, doesn't care. But in a few years, he'll care, right? Because it starts early. It starts very early. Parents pushing their kid, pumping this idea into their kids' heads that if you don't succeed, if you don't have goals, literally in a soccer game, then you've failed. You have failed. And I watched that kid's dad at the games, and now I know where he gets it from. I know where he gets it from. He's four years old, and he's already got this mindset that I have to perform or my parents are disappointed in me. In fact, there's a writer that I read about recently who called this the professionalization, the professionalization of childhood. And what they are saying is that not only do parents have professions, but kids have professions now too. And it's, hey, your profession, your job as a kid is to make me as an adult feel good about myself. It's to make, it's, it's for you to perform so that I can feel good as a mom or a dad about me being your dad or mom. The professionalization of childhood. It's really sick and kind of twisted. And they also quoted this. They said, um, the family is supposed to be a haven in a heartless world because we do live in a brutal, ruthless world, but instead the family has become the nursery where the craving for success is first cultivated. It's some powerful words. The professionalization of childhood. Now, I'll be honest, I mean, some of you guys might have these parents. You might have these parents that are just pushing you and pushing you, and you just feel like you're kind of just a pawn caught in the middle. And you feel like you have all this pressure for success, and that has to be your identity. Um, in the family that you're in. That's a possibility. I think there's two kinds of reactions to this pressure of success that most of us uh, run to. And the first is what I call the go-getter mindset. Go to the next slide. And the go-getter mindset is the person who feels the pressure that their parents or the the culture is putting on them. And they say, okay, I'm going to rise to the challenge. I'm going to defeat this, so to speak. And I'm going to prove to people that I am someone. And they have this go-getter mindset. Now, the go-getter mindset may not be bad if you have the right heart in that, right? That you get things done, you're successful. I mean, I'm not saying success is bad in that regard. I'm saying what you, how you let it define you, though, can be very, very destructive. So there's the go-getter mindset. Secondly, there's the slacker mindset. I don't have to explain that one to you, do I? Right? You, you know this very well. You know this to be true. There's the slacker. This is a person who... They see the same pressure that the go-getter sees, and they turn and they run. So because they're so scared of failing and they're so scared of being defined by their failures, they turn and they run from this. So the go-getter sees how brutal life is, and they rise to the occasion, but they let success become their identity. The slacker understands that, that life is brutal as well, but they turn and they run from it. And I want to start off this morning asking you some questions. 
because today I normally ask these kinds of questions at the end of the talk, but I wanted to do like a setup and then we'll get into the story here in a minute in Second uh, Kings chapter 5 in a minute. But so here's the question. How do you know if success is an idol for you? Here's some questions for you to think about. Uh, the first one is this. Do you find your security in your success? Do you find security in success? When you succeed at something, do you feel like I've, my life feels more secure now? My life feels more complete now, now that I've accomplished this? Secondly, do you obsess over failure? Do you obsess over failure? Does the thought of failing to you make you feel like you would just be totally crushed? You can't handle the thought of failure. Thirdly, does your confidence hinge on success? In other words, when you succeed at something, when people say, hey, that was a great theater performance, that was a great um, move that you pulled on the, you threw that girl like 20 feet in the air, that was incredible. I mean, whatever your thing is that you're involved in, whatever that thing is, when, when, you're, when you feel confident about a success, does that confidence bleed over into other aspects of your life? So not only did you succeed at theater or on the football field, but you now walk into a room and you feel like you're funnier, you feel like you have the, the role now, you can play that center role now where you get to be the center of attention because of the, of the success that you had somewhere else in your life. Does it bleed over onto other parts of your life, that confidence? Uh, fourthly, do you announce your successes to people? Are you the one that tells people, hey, you know what award I got? You know what I was recognized for? I just thought you might want to know. And then in keeping with this fourth one, the fifth one, this is going to get some of you. Do you post your successes on Facebook? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So here's a very real life one for you. Here's a question. Why don't you let someone else do that for you? If you're such a big deal, then why don't you let someone else say that about you, right? But if you've got to announce to people on Facebook what you accomplished, how you succeeded, then success might be an idol for you. And the last one. Do you sacrifice relationships in pursuit of success? Do you see people as just a means to an end? Or are you someone who, you, 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 uh, you pull yourself out of community, you pull yourself out of the church because, you know, church just takes too much time. i got to study. I've got real life to live here. I've got to get a college scholarship. I've got to get my GPA up because my parents want me to be in the top 2%. I'm supposed to be the, valid, the salutatorian or valedictorian in my class. And so I'm going to sacrifice community and relationships in pursuit of my success. So which one of those applies to you? Now, as we talk about this idol in our life, I know that you might think it just, it just affects, you know, one aspect of our life, but it affects every aspect of your life. And here's how. Because if you struggle like I do with this idol of success, it's going to affect how you approach God. It's going to affect your relationship with God and directly how you approach him in that relationship. And so today we're going to be looking at a story in 2 Kings chapter 5. So go ahead and turn there. 2 Kings 5. 
And Second Kings after First Kings, in case you don't know where to go with that. Before we go to that passage, I want to show you a picture on the screen. This is the historical background for this this story. This is the country of Syria, um, just northeast of Israel. And the story today is actually about not a Jewish person or an Israelite, but it's about a person named Naaman, who was an army commander for the king of Syria. So just northeast of Israel is Syria. And there was a, the, king of, the, the king of Syria at the time, um, there was an army commander named Naaman who was like in charge of a part of his army. And so the story is about Naaman today. So look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. I need to get some water here before we proceed. So verse 1, chapter 5. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Stop right there. So Naaman is successful. He's an army commander. He's a wealthy man. He is uh, looked up to by his peers. He's a valiant soldier. But there was one problem about Naaman. One problem. Next part of the verse says, next slide, he was a leper. He was a leper. So he had all these things going for him. He was successful. He had everything that you might want in that culture. He had honor. He had Uh, strength. He had respect, but he was also a leper. Now this might, today this might read that this person had the, the, the best job in the world. They had all this power, all this fame, but they had really, really serious cancer, right? And so leprosy, I know today you guys aren't thinking that you even know what that is, but basically, um, it was a horrible disease to get in that culture. In, in fact, in Israel, if you got this disease, um, you would not just be um, looked down upon, but you'd be shunned completely because people don't want to get what you have. It was contagious. And what it was is it was a flesh-eating disease. So you might get leprosy, and over the course of months and years, your limbs would literally start falling off while you're still living. It was like one of the worst ways to die in that culture. And so this is the, the disease that this man has. In fact, it reminds me of Another prominent person in our culture that recently died, uh, Steve Jobs. You guys know who that is, right? He was the CEO of Apple. So if you have an iPhone or know someone who does, which you probably do, he thought of this. This was his idea. The iPad, the iPhone, everything Apple's done that makes you think Apple is the greatest company in the world uh, was brought about by part of his genius. And recently he was diagnosed with really, really serious, a certain form of cancer, and he recently passed away this, this past year. And so it's hard for us. Most of us look at people like that and we think they're so successful. They've got all this. that They, they have all that they want. They're, they're geniuses. And yet we still see a guy like Naaman. He's a leper. He's a leper. His life is all put together except there's this horrifying reality that he's a walking dead man. He's a walking dead man. So look at the next uh, verse, verse 2. It says, Now the Syrians on, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. So when Syria invaded, some, uh, when they invaded Israel, they carried off this girl to be a servant to 
the, to Naaman, for Naaman. And it says, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, this is the girl talking now. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy, of his leprosy. So there's this little Israelite girl who knew about the prophet Elisha in Israel, and she tells Naaman's wife about Elisha. She says, I know, I know this prophet who can heal your husband of his leprosy. Tell your husband about this man named Elisha. And so the wife goes and tells her husband about Elisha. And so Naaman then packs up all of his stuff. We'll skip over verse 4 and 5. Basically it says, Naaman packs up all of his stuff. He packs up $80,000 worth of gifts, gold and silver. He brings a bunch of changes of clothes so he can really impress the prophet Elisha. And he also brings a letter from the king of, uh, of Syria to the king of Israel. And in verse 5, pick up there, or verse uh, 6, I should say, verse 6, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, you know, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So this guy's got 80 grand worth of gifts, changes of clothes, this big entourage. He's got a letter from the king of Israel to the king of Syria saying, I'm here. Can you please have someone heal me? Of my leprosy. Look at verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. You might be confused by that response, but apparently tearing your clothes was some form of like anguish or disregard for the person that's asking for this request. And so it wasn't like he was going incredible Hulk on him or something like that. But he just, he has this reaction to the letter thinking that Naaman is, is asking him as the king, hey, can you, can you heal me? And so the reaction is, I can't heal you. And so he tears his clothes, right? And then the next uh, verse, look down at verses uh, 8 and 9. But before we get there, I want you to know something from this. Just picture Naaman standing in front of, of the palace with all of his stuff, his letter from the king, he is counting on his success, his standing in the world to get him healing. He is counting on his success, his stuff to get him healed from his leprosy. Look at verses eight and nine. It says, but when Elisha, the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, I guess that was pretty big news. He sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and the chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So now now Naaman takes all of his stuff that he had in front of the king. He goes down to Elisha's house, and you can picture the same image. He's standing there in front of Elisha's house with all of his gifts, all of his money, his big entourage, Wanting to pay someone to bring him healing. Now watch what Elisha does. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Elisha didn't even come to the door. He sends his little messenger. He says, hey, this guy outside with all his stuff and his big entourage trying to be impressive. Go talk to him and tell him what I want to say to him. Look at what it says. Elisha sends a messenger to him saying, 
Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So what Naaman is saying is, doesn't he know who I am? I expected him to come out here and to wave a magic wand over me and to cure me of my leprosy because I am someone, I'm somebody. I'm someone important. Look at verse 12. This is still Naaman talking. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, I guess how you say that, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? So right there we see his arrogance. He's saying, I've already had to stoop to this level to come all the way over here to talk to this this Jewish prophet. Now this Jewish guy is telling me to go wash in some muddy river. If that's all that was required, why couldn't I just do that at home in Syria? We have better rivers than they have in Israel. You know what's bad? If you look down on someone else's rivers. Who cares, right? So look at what it says. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him. So now Naaman's servants who have some sense, they say, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So now his servants are saying, I mean, look, dude, we came all this way. Let's at least give it a shot. I mean, how hard could it be? Just go wash in the Jordan River. Let's just try this. You want to be healed of your leprosy, do you not? And so here's what I want you to see with Naaman. Naaman was used to a formula for life, and it was like this. You work hard, and you get success. If you have a place of standing in society, people do things for you. If you're successful, then you can get stuff done. This is the mindset he's operating from. He's used to this formula. Now someone, a prophet of God, is saying, you want to get healed? Just go wash in that river down there seven times. To which Naaman responds with anger and and, and can't believe this is so easy. He's, really? That's all I have to do? Well, that's, there's no way that's going to work. That doesn't require me to do anything. That doesn't require me to do something great or or something great of you as the prophet. And here's where I want you to understand something. Listen very carefully. What you've just seen in this story is the gospel. What you've just seen play out in this narrative is the gospel story. Because I want you to get something this morning. And it's this. The gospel is difficult and easy at the same time. Hear me on this. The gospel is difficult and and easy at the same time. It's easy because you can't earn your salvation. It's easy because you just put your faith and your trust in Jesus. It's easy in that regard, but it's also hard and difficult because it's hard to believe that, isn't it? There's a quote I came across recently by a guy named John Piper, a guy I listened to quite a bit, and it's this. Go to the, there you go. The Christian life is both a fight and a rest at the same time. The fight is to rest in the right thing, Jesus. Do you get that? It's hard to rest in Jesus. 
That's the fight, is that it's hard to rest in him. It's hard to make it that simple. We want to earn it. That's it, God? That's all you've got? Just believe? Just put my faith in him and his work for me on the cross? That's it? God, give me something to do. Give me something I've got to attain to. Give me, give me some success I have to do first. This is what Naaman thought. Naaman thought, anyone can wash in a river. I'm not just anyone. I'm someone. I'm someone important. And this is the invitation of, I want you to understand this. Look at me. This is the invitation of Jesus. Listen. Just come and wash yourself in the depths of my grace. I will cleanse you. I will transform you. Put your faith in my work, not in your successes. The story of Naaman is the story of us. We put our faith in our successes. Even if we know the, the grace and the gospel of grace, we still put our faith and our trust in our successes. Look at what happens in verse 14. We'll close out with this passage. You guys can have discussion in a minute. Look at verse 14. It says, so he went down, I'm sure reluctantly, and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. He's still trying, he's still trying to give gifts. He's still trying to give something back. But Elisha says, but he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So even after he is saved, transformed by God's grace, he is still trying to pay the prophet back. And that's the exact same thing you and I do with Jesus, isn't it? Even if we understand grace, we understand that it's a free gift to us through faith. We think, well, I got I to gotta pay him back. I've got to do something. And this, this is too easy. This is too simple. And so if there's anything you get from today, it's this. If success is your idol, which I'm sure it is for all of us in some regard, that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is that you, you let that mindset bleed over every aspect of your life, including how you approach God. And you try to approach God with your successes in mind. Do you understand that? And the story of Naaman is a story of many of us this morning. So go ahead and have some discussion here at the end and uh, just pray when you guys finish up at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.